Uh, if you could please grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, our stewards would um, just lift your hand up and our stewards will bring you one. So we have Sally. Sally's going to read for us 1 John 4, 1 to 6. Yes, 1 John 4, 1 to 6 is page 1227. So um, yeah, I'll let Sally read for us. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. There are from the world, and therefore the world listens to them. We are from God, and is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Well, good morning. Um, I'm going to hold on to phone so that we can, uh, so we've lent our radio mic to the, the CEU, and they love it so much for Mission Week, they've decided to keep it a little bit longer. Um, <laughs> but we are doing a, a great job, and I'm very grateful to Joy and, and Stephen for the work they're doing on the sound so that we can hear things. Um, please do have your Bibles open um, if you're using an old-fashioned one that really works because it's written on paper, or if you're following on your phone, uh, try not to, to lose, lose where you are on your phone, and I hope the signal remains so that you can keep checking it. But yes, we're in 1 John chapter 4. If someone said you had been duped, if you'd been duped, you'd naturally assume it wasn't a positive thing. Maybe you've been tricked into buying something that doesn't actually do what you thought it was. Or you've been fooled into signing up for a course that promised so much but didn't deliver. But until a few weeks ago, I hadn't realized that duping could be a good thing, especially when it comes to the growing market of perfumes. And I know you're already thinking, what on earth is Pete doing dabbling in the market of perfumes? It's a fascinating world. Radio 4 journalist Greg Foote, uh, in, in his program uh, Sliced Bread, looked into whether cheaper legal imitations of expensive perfumes pass the sniff test. It's a fascinating radio program. Can they really get close to the originals and last just as long? And the answer seems to be yes, they do. These clone perfumes do seem to get close to the originals to be indistinguishable because of the amount of research and the science that's gone into the production. And they do it for a fraction of the cost. Fascinating disruptor, isn't it? Now imagine that, close enough to the real thing that as your heavenly scent wafts through the room that you're walking through, that people get a blast of this delicious aroma and they can't tell that it isn't the branded one, but it has the same effect. And better still, there's no nasty stink in your bank account. 
But there are situations, surely, when being able to recognize the real thing is crucial. Take, for instance, the world of nature. And I was always struck by Rich, our associate pastor, who uh, is now back in Brisbane, when he um, would talk about spiders and just how kids from a really young age know how to tell the difference because it's life or death. The rabbit hutch spider, yes, there is such a thing. The rabbit hutch spider here in the UK is harmless, but it's also known as the false black widow. And you'd want to know the difference, wouldn't you? Because the black widow's bite can be deadly if it's not treated quickly enough. You see, a loving parent will do everything they can to make sure their kids know, especially in the US or in Australia, where these things run around, that they can tell the difference. That is something you don't want to be duped about. But what about spiritually? What about in the area of life where we say, this is God. This is how I relate to my creator, the spiritual, that makes sense of who I am. Is this an area of life we can just relax in? Is it an area of life we can just figure out as we, we go along the way? After all, aren't we all on the same path, spiritually, open-minded, trying to be the best version of ourselves, helping and hoping that everything will turn out okay in the end? Not for the Apostle John. It's a big no. He's looking after and overseeing the churches that are spread throughout first century Turkey. And the loving gospel shepherd parent that he is knows his congregations must recognize the difference between God's true good news and the world's false so-called good news. Jesus' truth or dupe truth. They needed to grow in discernment just as we do. If we don't, it will cost us eternity, and I'm not talking about the Calvin Klein type. So let's first be a tester. First point here. Verse 1, eyes down in the, in the Bible as you've got it there. Be a tester. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So far, John has built up a foundation in the letter of assurance for his listeners. They have genuine faith, and that's seen in their love for Christ, their love for each other, and their belief in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But they cannot be naive. They cannot be complacent. In chapter 3, verse 24, what we were looking at last week, look how that section finishes. We read there, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So there's the assurance, and you can see where he's going to go now. He's talked about the spirit. He mentioned the spirit back in chapter 2, and when he was talking about having the anointing as believers to know the truth. So he's going to develop what it means to live in the Spirit. But it means not being complacent. We've already heard an imperative command back in chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world. And he expanded on that. And here, we have an equally strong one. Do not believe every spirit. You see, there is a right way, interestingly, the Bible says, to be an unbeliever. 
There's a right way to be an unbeliever. In fact, we can ask God's Holy Spirit to help us develop our unbelief. That is, not to believe false teaching about Jesus. Positively, John calls us to be these proactive testers, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So Christians are to be people who evaluate, who discern, who know the difference between truth and lies. They know the difference between faithful teachers and false teachers. Remember, this isn't something new. This isn't something that John just dreamed up or thought, oh yeah, this will fill in a few more lines in my letter. This was on Jesus's heart. So as he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, what does he say? Watch out for false prophets. And here's the shock. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. They look the real deal. But they're coming to destroy. Jesus expects us to be alert. We should be able to tell the origin of the teaching we get at church. Is it biblical? Does it exalt and honor Jesus Christ. Now, over the last few weeks, most people have become very aware of the origin of their fruit and veg. Uh, Shoppers have become experts on the impact of bad weather in Spain and how it affects the harvest because of the lack of tomatoes in our supermarkets. And if church has spent as much time discerning error as the media did telling us about the state of tomatoes, we'd be in a very healthy place. The reality is, There are many voices in the world that are claiming to speak for God, that are claiming to have the hearer's best interests at heart. And John makes the origins of these false teachers crystal clear in verses 5 to 6. If you just look down, you can see how it's bookended. He's opened up with false prophets, and then he returns to them in verses 5 to 6. He says they're aligned with the world. That is the forces and the way of thinking and living that is in active rebellion against God. It is the sinful lawlessness John has described in chapters 2 and 3. That's their origin. That's what's going on at rock bottom foundation in their lives. And in contrast, you can see in verse 5 how he opens, they... And in contrast, verse 6, we, he's referring there to himself and the other apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, who saw, touched, heard, and lived with God as man, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. They are the authentic messengers from God. They're commissioned by Jesus himself, approved and inspired by the Holy Spirit. You can see the difference here. The origin is totally different. The false teachers, therefore, these who have gone out into the world are probably the same people that John had talked about back in chapter 219, which you can see if you just jump over the page, and you'll see there he references them as they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. They were once part of the churches, whether that was in Turkey or further afield, but moved on with a different message. Perhaps they wanted more freedom and innovation. Perhaps they thought a few updates would make the message of the gospel a bit more relevant, a bit more digestible for people. And when we think like that, we recognize it is a temptation today, a temptation now for us to tone down parts of the gospel 
And this is a temptation all Christians will face, whether we're on the mission field, like we've heard from that update, in a different part of the world, or even working uh, in the secular workplace with the conversations and friendships we have, uh, within our families, with relatives, or even working in the church and for the church. The temptation is real. Paul himself put it like this. Jesus demands signs, uh, sorry, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. This is in his letter to the Corinthian church. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we, Paul and his team, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. You see, every culture finds something offensive about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the offensive bits of the gospel, like Jesus, the exclusive Savior, the God-man who died as a sacrifice for our sin, to save us from God's judgment for an eternity with God. The bodily resurrection of Jesus. Well, that can be a joke to worldly, intelligent people, as Paul found out as he's speaking about it in Athens. Now, a message like that doesn't build much common ground with other ideas and philosophies, does it? There is a headbutting that goes on. Each culture will find things offensive about that good news. And if we go out with this message, we will face rejection. The CU Events Week for the universities in Manchester that has just happened has been a huge encouragement. There have been many encouraging signs of students coming and hearing the gospel, of uh, students who are coming from other nations, internationals studying here, who have had an opportunity to explore Jesus' claims. So encouraging, so encouraging. But no doubt there were also painful conversations. There were also people shutting down on the interest of the gospel or no replies or ghosting to events. And at that point, the temptation is to think, surely it can't harm to smooth off some of the rough edges. So, uh, smooth off the things that we know people are uh, about the gospel. Because we really want people to connect. We really want people to hear it. So why don't we just drop that, drop that, just change that a little, smooth off there. And here, have the refined version. You see, the satanic questions at work there, that question that was first spoken in the Garden of Eden, did God really say? Did God really say? You see, it's as still, as loud, and as clear as ever. And if Christ faced the attack in the form of a one-to-one -one Bible study with the deceiver in the wilderness for 40 days then we shouldn't be surprised that this side of Christ's return, there will be continued skirmishes under the banner of an inspiring new perspective on God's Word, whether that's from a popular Christian theologian or from a pastor that sound more at home, perhaps on a morning TV show like Ellen or This Morning, where that message is just welcomed and embraced. It should not surprise us. It will continue. And so I just want to ask you, do you, Christian, have a category for erroneous teaching? Do you have a category for that? 
And how would you spot it? How would you spot the error? It's interesting. I wonder, you know, as Christians, we don't tend to do this as much. Uh, In different traditions, they do. But when was the last time you read through something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed? and looked it up and thought, uh, what had been formulated here? These, these Christians, um, leaders and teachers in the first three, four centuries of the church's life were taking the Scriptures seriously. They were up against it, and they were formulating ways in which they could distill biblical truth so people knew what they meant about God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. They communicated this biblical truth in a way that united the church wherever it was placed geographically and in a way that tackled error. I've just got some links on the website there that you might, on websites that you might want to uh, look up. Why not have a read of our statement of belief that's published by the FIEC, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, which is the network we're part of at Grace Church. This is a statement of faith which is historic, it's orthodox in its theology, it's in the Protestant tradition of the Christian faith. Have you read it? Do you know where we're coming from as a church and why this is important? I put down here another resource, American Gospel. There are three films that these uh, producers made. And, and this one, Christ Crucified, I think is a really good one um, because it does tie in with what we're looking here at Jesus' nature by looking at his work on the cross. And in this film, uh, the producers do a number of interviews with theologians and everyday Christians to walk through the biblical teaching on the cross as the sacrifice of Christ dying in our place taking the punishment for our sin in order to save all who trust in him from hell. There are some powerful testimonies in the film. The producers also, and it's quite a risky decision, you don't normally see this, but I think it's admirable they did this. They gave space to interview teachers and pastors who have sadly and deliberately moved away from the orthodox biblical teaching on the cross. So that these pastors, these uh, teachers and church leaders could, could give their criticisms, could give their reasons, their story firsthand. They weren't mocked, they weren't misrepresented, but they were also answered. Two sides were given. And it's a fascinating resource. It was a work of love for the producers who were doing this on the side in their spare time alongside their professional jobs. And I think the result is really helpful for the church. It's just one example of how we as Christians could grow to understand the truth God has given us, to understand categories of error, to have a godly and compassionate tone as we think about our biblical discernment. But even that resource can only be as helpful as if it follows the test that John provides. So let's look at that now. Are they clear about Jesus Christ? Verses 2 to 3. 
Now, as I read these verses again, verses 2 to 3, just bear in mind what I've put up here on the slide. In 2015, there was a survey that was done between the Church of England and the Evangelical Alliance, and it found that four in ten people uh, did not believe Jesus was a real person. The the survey polled 4,000 people, so that's quite a wide uh, range and a a large number in the survey. 25% of 18 to 34-year-olds believe he's a mythical or fictional character. What does John say? This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Those who truly speak for God and by his Holy Spirit will acknowledge the truth that Jesus is indeed the Christ. He is the one come in flesh from God. The word flesh here is only used about the person of Jesus. It is a strong term. It's referring to his incarnation of the Christ, the divine Son. Now, even the unclean spirits, we can read from the Gospels, recognize the deity of Jesus. They do so straight in at chapter 1, Mark's Gospel where people are still trying to figure out who he is. The evil spirits know he's the Holy One of God. What they don't do, though, is acknowledge him as Lord. They're set up in rebellion against him. The Spirit of God always honors the Son of God. Jesus Christ taught that the Holy Spirit was to testify and glorify him. We read that clearly in John 15, verse 36. And again, in chapter 16, the work of the Spirit in the unbeliever is to help them see who Jesus is. Therefore, the person who truly speaks of the Spirit acknowledges, that is, literally confesses. It's the same word again in John's letter that was used to talk about confessing sin in chapter 1, verse 9. And again here in chapter 2, verse 23. Confession. That God's Christ, the eternal Son, and the Jesus of history are indeed the one and the same person. The eternal Son, the Jesus of history, are one and the same person. This is against the heretic's view that the Christ was a divine power that just so happened to descend upon a Jewish carpenter named Yeshua at his baptism and then withdrew from him before death. Can you see that this this would put us at odds with anyone who wants to say Jesus is only a supreme human being? He's only an enlightened teacher. Or he was only empowered by God for a time so that it seemed he was divine. And for those who believe that he was a mythical or fictional character, we're starting even further back in the conversation, aren't we? But we can, as a first step, just gently point out that their opinion that he was a a fictional or mythical character is an extreme minority opinion. It's on a par with sort of Holocaust deniers. It, It even goes against the majority view of secular mainstream academic historians. So this isn't anything about belief. Interestingly, there was this interview with Einstein himself, an interview from 1929, 
and he was asked about religious matters. And the interviewer asked him, to what extent are you influenced by Christianity? Einstein replied, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. So you accept the historical existence of Jesus, the interviewer continued, unquestionably. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Einstein said that. Now, I'm, it's a fascinatingly honest interview, and I'm grateful that John Dixon, Professor John Dixon, did the research to find that and verify the interview. And that isn't a hands-down winner, but it should make people think. Thankfully, capable Christian scholars in the first four centuries of the church defended and articulated the biblical doctrine of Jesus' divine and human natures in his one person. That is what John has put down here. It was entrusted to his people. It is the divine revelation, the truth of God here. And I'd recommend that you take the time to look into this. If you want a first place to go, the ESV Study Bible, which is a resource I recommend that you invest in and have on your shelf and use regularly. Um, in the back, there's some great articles. They have a superb article on the person of Christ. And if you want, I will email it to you as a PDF. And within that, they do look at those errors. And I just want to... Um, give not a, a long history lesson, but enough for us to understand some things we've got to be aware of. And it's been brilliantly put by Dr. Kevin DeYoung. So I'm very grateful for the way he sums this up. What you've got a picture in your head now is a bridge. So on one side, we have divinity. On the other side, we have humanity. And that's why the picture of a half-built bridge is there as a pointer. Because the main four Christological errors can be described in this way. So the first one, Arianism, from the fourth century, taught that Jesus was not fully divine. He was close to God, but he didn't share divinity. And so the bridge, if you're picturing it in your head, goes all the way from human nature towards divine, but stops halfway. Doesn't get to the other side. Doceticism which is from the Greek word dokia, which means to appear, taught that Jesus seemed to be human. So the bridge goes from the divine to the human, but doesn't go all the way. Nestorianism, which has nothing to do with Nespresso machines. It was a person, the 4th and the 5th centuries. They taught that the two natures, uh, divine and human, are not fully united. So essentially, Christ is a God, is a God-inspired man, basically. And so the bridge, if you can picture it on both sides, goes from both sides but has a gap in the middle. And then Eutychianism is the confusion of the two natures, the divine and human. So Christ only had one nature. And the human and divine were all mixed up together to get a third thing. And Eutychus starts, therefore, as a bridge in the middle of the river, 
but doesn't reach either side. As one writer put it, the world can handle the good man, but not the God man. The fruit of following these errors, quite simply, is that we have no Savior, no God, and fundamentally, God is made out to be a liar in his revelation. Nothing but the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, in flesh will do. And the spirit of the Antichrist is anything that confuses us about Christ, anything that helps us dismiss him or deny him or distract from him in word, in our deeds, in our heart. Any evil spirit, any philosophy, any tradition that says you don't need God, you're doing fine on your own. This is the melody of a rebellious world. And John hammers this home in verse 5. Have a look at what he writes there. They, the false teachers with the Antichrist spirit, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. Can you see the circular effect? Everyone has it. It's an echo chamber of thought, like the social media algorithms that just keep reinforcing what you want to read and see and hear. People want compassion, they want truth, they want forgiveness, but not on God's terms. And a message that's custom-designed to the world's desires will obviously get a large following. Because it comes down to the same final thing in each of us, our final authority. Every person is living with and operating with a final authority. You do it. You have one. As Christians, it should be God's Word is our final authority, His revelation. He is the authority. Every person is living and operating with a final authority. Something other than his objective, God's objective standard. It could be what's culturally acceptable. That could be the most powerful authority as we fit in. It could be scientific method. It could be my own personal experience, my own private revelations. Or just, actually, I want the least hassle in life. So whatever fits that. And in this context, the church desperately needs the discernment of God, the discernment that God can give us. And that's what he does. This is where we end. Look at verse 4, the greater comforter. It's what Adam rightly preempted at the start of our time together. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You see, even though... Believers are in this spiritual battlefield. That's the picture that's set up here clearly, where opposing spirits would love to see more people turn away from Jesus and reject him. John gives them and us three reasons for courage and comfort. The first is this. We are from God. And the grounds of that is there in verse 6. How do we know we are? Because whoever knows God listens to us, to, to John, the apostles' teaching. And whatever false teaching comes our way, believers who are holding fast, who have their ears open, who are listening to the apostolic message about Jesus in God's word, are rooted in God. That's a comfort. Secondly, John's congregations have overcome the opposition. It's not like they're taking a break, that they're on holiday and the fight's done and dusted, but they are standing 
We don't know how many people had left the church. We don't know how many had stayed with them. And it must have felt at some point that these churches felt like evil was winning. But John knows they're standing firm. No matter what they felt, they're still meeting together. They're listening to God's word. They're believing in Christ. They're obeying his commands. They're standing firm. And thirdly, the rock-solid basis of this victory is that the one who is in them, empowering them, God the Holy Spirit, is greater than the enemy, is stronger. The enemy who is permitted but limited by God to be at work in the world, the, the, the one in the world that is, is not explicitly identified in that verse, but we know from what John has already mentioned in the, his letter, it is the devil We're talking about the satanic power, the being who is set up against God. He is actually the defeated one. He's a defeated enemy scrambling around with a few futile skirmishes when the victory is declared. And it won't disrupt the final result of Christ's victory. So today... Right now, for those of you who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. Do you understand and know and feel that you do not have to be paralyzed by fear because we know God? We sang about it earlier. Do you know that? Do you feel it? Do you stand upon this truth? (laughs) You don't have to be paralyzed because God has made you his own. And if you love Christ Jesus, you have received by faith the message his apostles have set down in Scripture, preserved for us miraculously. You belong to God and he has made his home in you. Do you need anything more? I tend to go, oh yeah, it would be helpful if I had a few other things. How easy we forget. You see, God, through his spirit dwelling in us now, calls us to be discerning by listening to and obeying his word. Don't just follow the latest Christian fads. Simply because a teacher or author or the podcast host claims to be speaking for God and tacks on a few Bible verses or has a large social media following, don't use those litmus tests. But then the other way, on the other side here at Grace Church, just don't accept authoritarian leaders who suggest to doubt them is to doubt God. Discern, pray. Apply scripture. Learn more. Discuss with each other. John calls us to examine every teaching in the light of revealed scripture. You know, Paul went through this. When he was working as a missionary, he met some Christians, the Bereans, and he gives them the gospel in Acts 17, and then they go, right, okay, let us figure this out. Let's open up our Old Testament and have a look at what you're saying. And he says they're noble. They're noble because they tested his message with what God had revealed. And they knew it was true. 
and they accepted it joyfully. The elders, the life group leaders, church members here welcome that careful testing. That is what I would love us to be known as as a church. Not the main thing, one thing amongst many, because it means that we're loving Christ. It means we're serious about him. And it means that when the storms hit, whether they're cultural, whether they're pastoral, whatever it is, we know where our foundation is. We know where we stand. We welcome that careful testing. Zeal for truth is not driven, can I say, by arrogance. That is not what drives godly zeal. It is not fault finding either. It's not being the person who can spot the errors, and they love to do that. Just because it gives them a buzz. Let's spot another one. Let's go there. What about this? You know, no. It's not fault finding. It's not arrogance. Do you know what John would say it is that drives this? It's love. It's love. Zeal for truth is always subject to the test of love. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ and the love for each other. Let's pray. Father, quite simply, we praise you and honor your name because of all that you have given us in Christ Jesus. Lord, if we have come with doubts, with questions this morning about who you are, about the divinity of your Son, about the humanity of Jesus Christ, about his saving grace, his salvation that he offers to us, Lord, let us take those questions seriously. I pray that people wouldn't just sit back and say it doesn't matter. It does. So, Holy Spirit, would you do a work in those of us who have searching questions? Don't leave us on our own, Father. Bring that light of revelation. For those of us who are saying we walk with Jesus, we know him for however many years it's been or even if it's day two, Lord, may we never move from your word. Give us more of your Holy Spirit that we would learn to discern, that we would love to learn your word, to live it out to be able to have categories for error and discern what are, what are things we must avoid, what, what are convictions we can hold differently and with love and warmth. And Father, within that, give us a zeal for your truth that issues itself in love, love for Christ, love for your glory, love for your people, love for the lost, that the fragrance of Jesus Christ, of his life, would be what people encounter when they meet believers. Would you do that work in our church here at Grace? Amen.